0: More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website www.deanbible.org or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer number 461 Houston, Texas 77057 That's 5868-W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. Okay, the one new announcement that you should pay attention to is that George Meisinger's surgery has now been set for Monday, June 27th. So keep that in your prayers. Uh, He will be, he's got some sort of mass or tumor they've identified on his uh, colon. And we need to pray that it is benign and dealt with easily. And then the Ulan update, it just gets more and more complicated every other day. And the scenario changes every day. So just keep it in prayer. Ulan, at this point, is still in Norway. And uh, he will probably be deported from there unless something happens and the Lord intervenes. So just keep it in prayer. I can't even begin to tell you what the situation is today. And it's rather fruitless because by tomorrow morning it will change. So just keep it in, in your prayers. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Use 1 John 1, nine if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the things that are taught here. As we study about the ascension and the session of our Lord Jesus Christ and what you are doing in history, we pray that you would help us to see how we fit in this picture. That history isn't just the movement of nations and armies and political figures, but it has to do with the impact of each individual believer In time in this church age And that means that our spiritual life is very significant And its impact is very important Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we study them tonight We pray this in Christ's name, Amen Okay, we are in the third verse in Hebrews chapter 1 Third verse, Hebrews chapter 1. Now, let's get the context again. This is very important. Corrected translation. After God spoke in a variety of fragments and in various forms in time, passed to the fathers by means of the prophets. Old Testament revelation partial and given to Israel by means of Israel's prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us. By means of his son. This is the main idea in the three verses. He has in these last days spoken. It has a finality to it in the uh, revelation given, in the fullness of the revelation given through the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And then we go into a list of things that characterize the son. I believe there are seven things listed here. The first two come at the end of verse 2. Number one, he is appointed heir of all things, and second, through whom also he made the ages. So that indicates that, first of all, that there's a point to destiny here, whom he has appointed heir of all things, that history is moving to a finalization. It's going in a particular direction. And so there is meaning. Purpose and definition to history It's not just a bunch of random events I think uh, Henry Ford is quoted as having said That history was just one damn thing after another And that's the idea that it's just meaningless events No, the Bible says that it all flows together It all has direction and purpose And that the Lord Jesus Christ is overseeing this So it's moving in that direction Of that final complete inheritance That is given to the Son Second thing, it's the Son through whom also He, that is God the Father, made the ages, the dispensations. So we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who moves things along through the dispensations. And then there's a shift at the beginning of verse 3, indicated by the shift to a nominative relative pronoun, making the Son the subject of the verse. And we're told that, he is the radiance of his glory the exact image of his person and he upholds all things and that has the idea of upholding there has the idea of moving things along moves all things along by the word of his power those three things relate to his expression as the second person of the trinity he's the exact essence of god he is the same in he uh, is undiminished deity and therefore he has the authority Over history to move history along. And then we are at the last two phrases, the second to last, after he had by himself made purification for sins, and we studied the significance of that. And uh, verse three, after, uh, literally, after he had. By Himself made purification for our sins. That refers to His work on the cross, the spiritual substitutionary atonement. And then the last phrase is the issue of the session of Christ. And that is, He sat down at the right hand of God. So, we're getting into the whole doctrine of the ascension and session and this is important because it underlies everything in Hebrews In fact, the ascension or session is alluded to in almost every chapter In every division or section in the book There is some sort of allusion to the ascension and session So you could say that, that it's the foundation uh, in the thinking of the, the, the writer of Hebrews Is he is encouraging and challenging these Hebrew believers to hang in there in their Christian life, no matter what the overt persecution may be, no matter how difficult life may be at times, no matter what the temptation or the test is to just bail out and say, well, you know, that was nice, but I'm going to uh, live my life on my own terms and get out from under the pressure cooker of trying to live the Christian life. Uh, He's challenging them to hang in there because there's long-term consequences. We're not living just for today. We're living in terms of our eternal destiny. And that brings in the whole arena of eschatology and why it's important to understand eschatology. It's not simply a point Uh, to study eschatology because you're satisfying curiosity as to whether or not current events have something to do with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ coming back or or doing newspaper exegesis, but that 28% of the Bible was prophetic when it was revealed. 18% is still unfulfilled prophecy. And therefore, one out of almost every five verses of the Scripture has to do with unfulfilled prophecy. Now, that's significant. I've heard people say, well, in fact, there was somebody who attended the prophecy conference back in May who made a comment to a pastor that was here and uh, said, you know, I just think we're making too much emphasis on all this prophetic study. The pastor just reamed him out. I was glad to see that. Because he made the point that if you don't have a proper understanding of eschatology And all of its dimensions You can't have a personal sense of your eternal destiny Because that's where we're headed And when you look at the scripture And you go back into the Old Testament And you look at the passages, the books That give us so much of the unfulfilled prophecy Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Zephaniah, Zechariah All of these books that talks so much about the day of the Lord, the judgment on Israel, all of these things that are going on in the future. They're given to Israel in times of national crisis. National crisis when the country is on the verge of being defeated by the invasion of foreign armies and it is given to comfort Israel with the reality that when, that despite the fact that everything is in chaos right now, Jesus Christ controls history and ultimately God will fulfill all his promises to you. And so even though right now in your situation things may look out of control, things may look chaotic, you may indeed lose everything you have. Nevertheless, God is not out of control. God has not lost control. And God is going to fulfill his purposes in the end. And that's a tremendous uh, message of comfort. So one of the reasons you study prophecy is because it gives us comfort and stability in times of crisis, whatever, whatever that time may be. Well, a study of the doctrine of the ascension and session directly relates to one important doctrine in prophecy, and that's the doctrine of the kingdom. And so when uh, Jesus was about to ascend to heaven in Acts chapter one verse six. He asked the disciples, or the disciples asked him, rather, is this the time you're going to bring in the kingdom? Now, that's the important concept. Y'all remember back when, most of y'all are old enough to remember this, unfortunately, but remember back when we were kids and we used to watch those silly Saturday morning cartoons and then they would start singing some song and they would have the words up there and you'd follow the bouncing ball, and you follow the bouncing ball so you know where you are and you can sing along. Well, the bouncing ball... In terms of the doctrine we're studying Is this concept of the kingdom That is why it's so important And the concept of the kingdom Is not an easy subject To fully understand In terms of all the complexities That are taught about the kingdom In the scriptures You have the kingdom parables In Matthew chapter 13 And there's a number of interpretive problems Related to those There are other things that the Lord taught In other kingdom parables That are also uh, somewhat difficult to interpret We don't want to get sidetracked Into any of that But we need to understand What's going on in terms of the kingdom Today And I'll tell you why. one reason this is so important Because ninety. Nine percent of Christians out there and churches out there think that we're in some form of the kingdom today. And if you're in some form of the kingdom today, then that changes your whole understanding of a lot of different things, including the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and including uh, your your understanding of God's plan for Israel in the future And if we're in some form of the kingdom today, as Tommy likes to say, then we must be in a millennial ghetto because it sure doesn't feel like I'm living in the kingdom. So this is the issue. And when the disciples ask Jesus, is this the time you're going to bring in the kingdom, He doesn't... Put them down. He says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He's putting them off. There is a postponement of the kingdom. And that term is so crucial today. Because what you find being taught in a number of places is that the kingdom was inaugurated at the first advent rather than postponed. And it changes so many, it changes your views on the role of the Christian in politics and law and the spiritual life and what the church is doing in this age. It just affects everything, just something that little. You may not understand all the permutations, and you don't have to right now, but that's why these are very important terms. The kingdom was postponed. So Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons right now, but in contrast, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, one of the things you should note there is the recognition of the coming of the Holy Spirit to give power for the spiritual life is taught in Acts 1.8 in the context of a question about the kingdom and the context of the postponement of the kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when they ask him, is this now the time you're going to bring in the kingdom? He says, no, I'm not, but instead you're going to get the Holy Spirit right now. It tells us that there must be some connection between the giving and sending of the Holy Spirit for the church age and the future kingdom. Now just hold on to that thought, because what Jesus said in John sixteen seven related to the ascension, is that I have to go to heaven so that I can send the Holy Spirit. When we put these things together, what we're going to see is that God is doing something profound in the church age right now. And that has to do with what He is producing in every individual believer through God the Holy Spirit in preparing us for that future kingdom. So this is a time of preparation. Okay, now, verse 9 says, "When, "...when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He just took off like a rocket from Cape Canaveral. And they just stood around with their mouths open because they had never seen anything quite like that. And the angels appeared a couple of minutes later and said, "...well, men of Galilee, why are you standing there gazing?" into heaven why why is your mouth hanging open and then they say the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven well why would he come back he's going and he's coming back and we just learned that the kingdom's being postponed so there's again the hint that this return has to do with the coming of the kingdom so we ask several questions Now, we covered some of this last time, but we didn't have class last week, so I want to get the review of these first three points before we go forward. Why did Jesus have to ascend at all? What is going on here? Why didn't Jesus just give him the kingdom right then? Now, think about that. Jesus, all through the Old Testament, the prophecy is the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to bring a kingdom. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy paints this picture of this glorious kingdom in Israel. So the Messiah comes, and the message, as we'll see, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist, Jesus, the disciples all preach this message. Now, the, there was a problem because the people rejected the King as he came, because he came as a suffering Messiah, not as a not as a glorified Messiah, not as a reigning Messiah. So the kingdom's postponed, but. They didn't expect that. Why did it have to be postponed? What is going on here? Because that's related to the ascension. Second question, why did Jesus Christ have to ascend before sending the Holy Spirit? This whole ascension and session thing has something to do with what he is doing in this age and the sending of God the Holy Spirit. You can't separate the two. Why did Christ have to ascend before giving spiritual gifts? That's the context of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, that he ascended and gave gifts to men, and specifically the leadership gifts of the church. So that the ascension has something to do with distributing spiritual gifts for the edification and training of believers in the body of Christ. So once again, you get this training idea that whatever is going on in this age, it has something to do with the Holy Spirit and the giving of gifts that are related to the Holy Spirit and training the everyday believers for some future task. And then, of course, this last question seems a little redundant. What's the connection then between the ascension of Christ and the giving of gifts? All these things relate to each other. So we started about a ten-point review of the doctrine. Now we're going to work out some different elements of this as we go along, and I, I wanna, want you to understand the context in Hebrews 1. The last thing stated about the Lord in verse 3 is that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then He says something after that in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels. By, in the ascension, as we'll see in our review, in the ascension, Jesus Christ is elevated over the angels in his humanity, not in his deity. Just catch this. I know this isn't the simplest thing. In Jesus Christ's deity, he's always been over the angels. He didn't lose that when he became incarnate. In his deity, he always was in charge of the universe. In his deity, he was always the one who made the worlds. In his deity, he was always the one who upheld all things by the word of his power. But in his humanity, he had to, he had to go through the process of regaining, of gaining that in terms of his position as the son of David. I, don't, I can't remember. I just taught this series down in Brenham, so I can't remember where I, whether I used this analogy with them. I know I used it with them, but I can't remember if I used it with you. If I did, just bear with me. Uh, it's good review. Let's imagine that there's some evil empire that arises in Europe and defeats the English. And so the royal family has to flee from England, and many others have to flee, as the French did uh, after France was conquered by the Germans in World War II. So you have these expatriates, these uh, English, who have had to flee uh, Britain, and they form an army. And you have someone like Prince Harry, who is, has, is born to the throne, has all of the credentials to assume... The kingship of England, that's his birthright, and that would be analogous to Jesus Christ and his deity having the authority over all the angels and over history. But he's incognito due to the threats that would be made uh, on his life, so he enters into this army, this British army, that is going to retake the island, and he enters into the ranks as a private. And then he works his way up through the ranks and achieves the rank of general, and then leads the army, because he has now earned the title and the responsibility, he leads the army back to England, conquers their enemies, and frees his homeland. He has achieved his position both by right of birth and by right of growth, education. And overcoming all of the obstacles He earns it in two ways He has earned it and he's gained it by birthright So Jesus Christ does the same thing by analogy By his uh, inherent eternal being He is the authority over all of history But he enters into human history as a man, and he's going to be elevated over the angels so that in his humanity he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and he is in control of the universe. As a man, not just in his deity. Which relates to the fact that he is the son of David And therefore he's going to be able to come back and rule the earth That title, son of David, specifically relates to his humanity Now all of this ties together a number of doctrines They're usually not taught very well And so most people never get to the point where they try to pull all these different threads together In order to see what it means But that seems to be What the writer of Hebrews has done Verse 4 Says that having become so much better Than the angels He has by inheritance See by inheritance That inheritance is not related to his deity That inheritance is related To his humanity And by his inheritance He has obtained what A more excellent name Than they He's, He's elevated over the angels Now the that brings us to the end of this; these first four verses. We're not through with them yet. We'll still touch on them next week. But it concludes the whole argument, the whole train of thought that goes through those first four verses ends with that final statement that Jesus Christ has by inheritance obtained a greater name than the angels. And then in verse 5 it begins, For to which of the angels... Did he ever say you are my son today I have begotten you You see the connection that he's making here The writer of Hebrews makes the statement Jesus Christ is now elevated over the over the angels and now I'm going to go back to a number of Old Testament prophecies and passages in order to demonstrate that this was foreseen and foretold in the Old Testament. And then what we're going to do is we're going to extrapolate that to understand what is going on in terms of the session and its relationship to the high priesthood of Christ, and that high priesthood entails a priesthood. The high priest, A high priest doesn't function without a priesthood underneath him. A high priest doesn't function without priests who serve with him so that's where we come in we are that priesthood that serves with the lord jesus christ those who are co-heirs with him if they suffer with him and we studied that in uh, romans chapter 8 16 17 and 18 so we tie all these things together and that's the progress of thought through the book of hebrews and see if you if you don't have a good dispensational focus here then you're going to miss what's really going on And you're going to end up like nearly every commentator on Hebrews And you're going to end up saying This book is just talking about how Christ is superior to the Old Testament uh, To the Old Testament priesthood The Old Testament ritual He's superior to the angels And you end up thinking that everything in Hebrews is about the superiority of Jesus Yeah, but it doesn't stop there It's the superiority of Jesus in order to get to something And that is the significance of that for the Christian life today. And so at the end of each of these sections, as we studied in the opening introduction, at the end of each of these sections in the book, it's like a five-point sermon. There's a doctrinal development in terms of a theological development, and then there's an application and a warning to the believers not to give up the ship In terms of your Christian life But to hang in there to keep pushing forward To keep doctrine number one Because all of this is designed to train you To rule as kings and priests With Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom So once again we come back to the concept of kingdom We're preparing for a kingdom So what happens with the kingdom? Okay, point number one, the Jews expected a one-coming Messiah. This is just review. expected a one-coming Messiah. They didn't distinguish between the first advent and the second advent. They thought the Messiah would just come and establish His kingdom, and then they would go into that glorious time. Second point, what they misunderstood was that He would have to suffer first and then reign second. They wanted the crown before the cross, the glorious Messiah before the suffering Messiah. So they were focusing on all the glories that are described in the Old Testament rather than, the, first of all, the suffering that goes on at the cross for our salvation. 1 Peter one ten and 11, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you Made careful search and inquiry. That's talking about the Old Testament prophets. What are they searching? They're searching all the texts. They're searching every verse. They're, They're analyzing all the Old Testament prophecies to try to understand specifically who the Messiah is going to be, where He's going to come, and when He's going to come. Verse 11, Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, that's the Holy Spirit, now called the Spirit of Christ in this passage, as he predicted one, the sufferings of Christ, and two, the glories to follow. The prophets understood there was this twofold ministry of the Messiah suffering and then glory. Now, in the life of Jesus, if you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there is a pattern that you find in every one of the Gospels related to the kingdom. And that is that initially there is the offer of the kingdom. Jesus comes offering the kingdom. This, and the more he offers the kingdom, the more resistance there is from the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, until finally they come to this, this, uh, crisis point. And they reject the king. It happens in Matthew chapter 12. They say, well, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul was another name for Satan. So they accused Jesus of being indwelt and empowered by Satan. This was called by Jesus the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not simply rejecting Christ as Savior it's rejecting it is a it is a historically conditioned situation only the Jews at the time of the Messiah's coming could commit the blasphemy of the holy spirit and what Jesus says in that passage indicates that because of the blasphemy of the holy spirit they were going to be judged and that judgment came in 70 AD so the blasphemy of the holy spirit is a an event that could only occur at the time of the Messiah. Now, there's about five or six different interpretations of that, and usually among uh non charismatics your people are either taught number one that it, it just it's just the rejection of the gospel and that's not true. You've got to study the passage. It's directly related to the accusation that he's not the Messiah and the rejection of him as Messiah. The other view, which is a view that you may find in Ryrie's study Bible, a view I held for many years, and that is that it's uh simply a rejection of him as as Messiah. Uh Several years ago, I was going through this passage with uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, and Arnold just had a great perspective on it, and he ties it directly to the history of the nation and ties the rejection, the blasphemy, to the fifth cycle of discipline in 70 A.D., which really fits the passage. And so ever since then, I've understood this in a slightly different way. So it's specifically related to uh, the ultimate uh, judgment in 70 A.D., And when the nation went out in the fifth cycle of discipline. But you have the offer of the kingdom, the rejection of the kingdom, which rapidly leads to the crucifixion of the king. Well, if the kingdom was offered and the king is rejected and crucified, what happens to the kingdom? Where did it go? That's the issue. Third point. John the Baptist, Jesus, as well as the disciples all proclaimed the same message about the proximity of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an offer, and what it's challenging the Jews to do is to reject the legalistic, works-oriented religious system introduced in the uh, second temple period with the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and their desire to, and their attempt to try to gain God's approval through all of their their works. And so they had to change their mind about this and about Him as Messiah and accept Him as Messiah. And then the kingdom would come. Notice we're just following this kingdom message. Matthew 3.2, uh, Matthew 4.17, and Matthew 10.5 and 6 all deal with this issue. Matthew 10 is a particularly significant passage. Jesus sends the twelve out and says, Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't take this message to the Gentiles. Just go to the Jews. It is a Jewish-related gospel. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you have to, to understand Jesus' ministry in the first two To two and a half years, you have to understand that it's focused on presenting him as the kingdom. Point number four, as we saw in the chart, near the midpoint of his ministry, the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus as Messiah, which led to the postponement of the kingdom. How do we know it was postponed? Because when the disciples asked the question, they said, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And he said, "But in contrast, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So there's a postponement of the kingdom. You can't to have a kingdom, you have to have a what? A king. Now the role of king in the Messianic Kingdom is related to which sonship of Jesus Christ? Which sonship? Son of God, Son of Man, Son of Mary, Son of Adam, Son of Abraham." Son of David Son of David Somebody nodded their head They've been listening Son of David So right now Jesus is not on David's throne He is sitting at the right hand of the Father's throne Now that's really important today You may not realize this Because a lot of times folks just don't know What's going on in the wind out there in the world But most people people, whether you're in covenant theology or this new development of that so-called progressive dispensationalism that's come out of Dallas Seminary, has Jesus sitting on the throne of David in heaven right now. Now that changes so much, but it's really clear in the Scriptures that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And He doesn't come as the son of David to exercise His... Responsibilities and his prerogatives As a son of David Until the end of the tribulation period So the kingdom's postponed What happened to it First of all the Postponement of the kingdom Called for a postponement of the glories of the kingdom so, Israel's not going to experience all of the blessings and privileges and glories that God promised in the Old Testament. It's yet future. What is taught about the Holy Spirit in relationship to the New Covenant doesn't happen. We don't even have, we have some similarities today, but in the passages you study on the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, um, 31 to 35, it talks about the fact that there will be no need for a man to teach his neighbor. Because everyone knows the Word of God. I'm going to be out of business. There are, there's not going to be any pastors in the millennial kingdom. Everyone is going to know doctrine intuitively. Now you have to learn it. Everybody's going to know it in the millennial kingdom. So that's just, it's very clear today that we can't even, uh, there's no form of the new covenant enacted today other than we are being blessed in terms of salvation. We'll get into that. That's a whole subject of Hebrews 8. Point number 2, and the answering the question what happened to the kingdom. Postponement means the issue of the kingdom relates to the distinct plans of God for Israel and the church. If the kingdom's postponed, then something new is going to happen in history, something unforeseen, something that wasn't prophesied. If it had been prophesied, then the Jews would have said, well, we know we're going to fail. See, that's why. Have you ever wondered why God never told the Old Testament prophets anything about the church age? Why it's this big, deep, dark secret? Why you have mystery doctrine? It's because if they knew there was going to be a new people that was going to be brought on the scene, it would give them an idea of their own failure, and it would destroy the legitimacy of the offer of the kingdom. So God's going to do something different, and it's related to his long-term plans in terms of inheritance. Third point, postponement means there's going to be an unforeseen departure. An unforeseen departure and a second coming. The ascension wasn't prophesied because that would have indicated that there was a postponement of the kingdom. And if there's a postponement of the kingdom, then what would Jesus have been able to say, repent for the kingdom may or may not come, probably won't. So it had, to make that a legitimate offer, there had to be no indication whatsoever in the Old Testament of the ascension or departure of the Messiah or second coming. So in John six sixty two, Jesus says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? Now this brings in another sonship title. You remember last year, many of you went through those uh, 16 or 17 lessons that I did on Christology. and In one of those classes, I went through all the titles of Christ. That He's the Son of Abraham, He's the Son of Adam, He's the Son of Man, He's the Son of David... Uh, he's the Son of Mary. All these titles emphasize His humanity. And then you have, on the other hand, His title, Son of God, which emphasizes His deity. So Son of Man is a title that emphasizes His humanity. That's the idea in the in the Hebrew idiom. In the Hebrew, it, it's usually left untranslated or actually it's interpreted in most English translations but in the Hebrew, you'll find a number of places where somebody's called a fool. You'll read it in your English, but what it actually says in the, in the Hebrew is son of a fool. Or they were murderers, and what it says in the Hebrew is they were sons of murderers. You see, it's this idiom that, that if you're going to call somebody something, have some sort of adjectival description, then you say that they are a son of that quality, Barnabas. In the New Testament, the traveling companion of Paul on his first missionary journey, Barnabas means son of encouragement, not because his daddy was an encourager, but because he was an encourager. If you were a murderer, you'd be called a son of a murderer. So when Jesus is called son of God, it's not talking about the fact that that God is his daddy. It is talking about the fact that he is fully God. He is undiminished deity. He is not the result of some sort of divine uh, procreation, spinoff, or emanation, as you get in various Gnostic Gospels. So Jesus says the Son of Man, calls himself the Son of Man, and that title has... Significant meaning. I mean, this, this is a term that comes right out of Daniel 7, chapter 7, and it's just loaded with all kinds of kingdom meaning for a Jew. But not only does he apply the term Son of Man to himself in John 662, he says that the Son of Man, which is, which emphasizes his humanity, the Son of Man has to ascend to where? To where he was before. To where He was before what? Before dinner? Before the Incarnation. It's a statement of His deity here that the Son of Man is now being connected to the eternality of Jesus Christ and His pre-incarnation status as the eternal second person of the Trinity. John sixteen twenty four. Jesus said, "...I came forth from the Father." And have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. Well, this is news to the disciples that He's leaving. Nevertheless, He says in verse John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Assistant, the Holy Spirit who is the Assistant to the believer in his spiritual life, Will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So there's our connection to the spiritual life of the church age. Fifth point: the result of the ascension, I mean, the result of the rejection of Jesus as a Messiah, means that Jesus has to expand his base. He's come into his people, but the people did not accept him. That's what John chapter one says. He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. So, all through the Old Testament period, up to the Incarnation, the Messiah is going to come and establish a kingdom, but His people reject Him. So what's He going to do now? Okay, we're going to go to what appears to us to be plan B, and that is we're going to call out a new people, They aren't going to replace Israel, but they are going to have a new destiny and a new purpose in relationship to the kingdom. So point number six, the next stage is to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives related to the angelic conflict. The Jews failed, but the Jews also did not have a completed canon. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't have the spiritual life that's based on a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. In fact, their salvation was provisional because Jesus hadn't come yet, in contrast to the church-age believer who has a complete and final salvation because Christ has paid for our sins. So, the church-age believer is going to do certain things in terms of his personal witness in the appeal trial of Satan that no one else in history is going to be able to do. That's why, if you've been hanging with me on on, uh, on the study in Revelation 2 and 3, this is why there is this angelic officer that is given a copy of the evaluation report of each of those congregations is because it's related to these objectives that are being fulfilled through church-age believers. See how this this whole thing just gives you a whole new overview and appreciation for what's happening in in your life. You may have thought when you got saved that, hey, this is great, now I get to go to heaven. But there's so much more to it than that. It is something God is doing in each of our lives to prepare us for that future destiny. The Jews, the principles, a couple of principles that underlie this. First of all, the Jews are an earthly people with an earthly destiny. They have a piece of geography over there in the Middle East that is theirs forever. They have an earthly destiny and an earthly purpose. But the church is a heavenly people with a heavenly destiny And a heavenly purpose. This means there's a different basis for living the the spiritual life today than there was in the Old Testament. It's a supernatural life that demands a supernatural means of execution. The Christian life isn't difficult; it's impossible. You can only do it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Walking by means of the Spirit, being in right relationship to the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, abiding in Christ. If you're not there, you're trying to do it on your own through your sin nature So you, have, you are a heavenly people You are the future bride of Christ And Jesus Christ is preparing you right now for that future wedding feast Now hold that thought for a couple of days if you can that future wedding feast is the background for understanding the challenge portion in this third letter to the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2 that we'll get to on Sunday night. Our heavenly purpose is related to being the bride of Christ. And being, and, and what's the role of a bride? What's the role of a wife? Just basic question. A wife is an assistant. It's an aider, just like a God is our helper In fact, it's a different language when you get over to the Greek, but the concept of the Holy Spirit as our paraclete is directly related to the concept of the wife being the aetzer to the husband, the assistant, the one who uh, helps him in fulfilling his God-given destiny and task and ministry on earth. So, what's our role as a church, as the church... The body of Christ, uh, the bride of Christ. It is that we are being prepared today to be that aider, that helpmate, that assistant to the Lord Jesus Christ in the future kingdom, when we will co-reign with Him, co-rule with Him as priests and kings. Now we ask the question: Why the ascension? We've seen, first of all, that the Old Testament envisioned one coming, not two. Jewish rejection brought a postponement of the kingdom. Third, there's now an unanticipated age, the church age, not foretold, not foreseen, not prophesied in the Old Testament. Fourth, that tells us something about the church age being unique, Directly, and it's directly related to the role of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life. That's why you can't go back and say, okay, I'm going to live the spiritual life on the basis of obeying the law, obeying the moral mandates of Scripture. It's not going to cut it in the church age. You can't pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and say, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm just going to follow the commands. I'm going to fulfill the mandates and avoid the prohibitions of Scripture. It won't happen. That's morality. Any unbeliever can do it, and it will always fail. And most Christians are running around spinning their wheels trying to do that. So the seventh point, Jesus sent, sends the Holy Spirit after the ascension to give birth to the church at Pentecost, John seventeen six. The Holy Spirit sends the Holy Spirit, or Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to give birth to the church at Pentecost. So there is a new organism. See, the church isn't just an institution, a bunch of believers who get together for Bible class. It is a living organism. We are just as much a part of the body of Christ as Paul, as John Nelson Darby, as uh, Dwight Moody, as other believers who have gone before us. They're just not on earth They're face to face with the Lord, but we're all part of the body of Christ. It is one dynamic organization. Point number eight. Immediately after the ascension, Jesus was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, above all other powers, authorities, angelic and human. This seating of of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the majesty on high, in verse three, The seating of Jesus is called the session. I always wondered about that. You hear the doctrine of the ascension and session. You just think it's one word, ascension and session. Now, why do they call it a session? Never thought about that. I might have a session with the principal at school after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. The word session comes from the Latin word sessionum, which is the act of sitting. That's why it's called the session. Now, what happens during the session? Point number nine. During the session, Jesus is not passive, but is involved in calling out a new people, the church, which is called his body, which will be his bride, and he is the head. He is the authority. And as the head, he is going to distribute gifts. Ephesians one twenty-two and 23, he distributes the gift, of course, through uh, delegating it to God the Holy Spirit So Ephesians one twenty two and 23 But he is in that position of authority First Peter 3, 22 He has gone into heaven And is at the right hand of God Angels and authorities and powers Have been made subject to him That's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews says In Hebrews 1, 4 That he has become so much better than the angels the word paru'omai is a word that means to go on a journey. And when it says he has gone into heaven, that indicates a physical thing. This isn't some sort of um, dematerialization. He's not beamed up. You know, Jesus didn't say, Beam me up, God. He moved physically and spatially through the heavens. That's the picture that we have. And so he is sitting at some spot in this mortal human body that is now that well, was mortal now it's immortal it's the resurrection body at the right hand of the Father. He is in his humanity finite and always will be finite in his humanity. Hebrews four fourteen. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, D erchomai. He has gone physically through the. Heavens of the atmosphere and the heavens of the universe and the galaxies. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see in that verse the connection. You have the session which relates to his high priesthood, and then there's the writer draws a conclusion, seeing then that we have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, that's the ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, let us do something now. Let us hold fast our confession. That is the doctrine that we believe. That is what we hold to. Hebrews 4.15, 4, explanation. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. So there's a connection there between his testing and his sanctification as a preparation for not only the cross, but also His present position seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians one twenty is another passage, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come Verse 22 And he put all things in subjection under his feet And gave him his head over all things to the church Now that's where the Apostle Paul really shines through in the Pauline epistles In talking about the church and the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church As the head of the church and, as the, and the church as the bride of Christ But Paul never develops the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ And it's the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ which is related to his session. And it's the writer of Hebrews that unpacks that whole doctrine. And this then presumes a certain amount of understanding related to the doctrine of the ascension and session. He's in authority over everything. Because he's in authority over everything. And because you are united with Christ... In positional truth through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit At the instant of salvation That means that we have that direct connection to the one who is at the helm of the universe And this is a medieval artist's conception of the uh, ascension And what is significant about this is it portrays Jesus Christ here in the center As being over everyone else That he is in his humanity elevated to that position of authority over mankind down here at the bottom And over the angels represented by this group of individuals in the uh, upper part of the painting Now we come to Ephesians 4, 7 through 11 Where we find, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift That's a spiritual gift Therefore, it says, that is Psalm sixty eight eighteen, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's a few changes to the text to make it apply. But the Apostle Paul is taking that Old Testament passage that talked about the ark being taken up to the top of the Temple Mount as a picture of God's ascendancy and victory over the enemies of Israel. This took place, remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, just after David defeated the Jebusites, the last holdout of Canaanites in 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel 5 is the defeat of the of the Jebusites. 2 Samuel chapter 6, the ark is moved to the Temple Mount. And then 2 Samuel 7, God gives David the Davidic covenant. See how that all fits together. You know, it's just so tremendous when you get to a point where you can you can get this overview of what's happening in Scripture and realize that these threads are all tie things together throughout all of these passages. And so, there's the defeat of the Jebusites. The Ark is taken to the Mount Mount Zion in Jerusalem as a, a symbolic. Uh, as a symbol of God's victory over, over all the enemies of Israel And David distributes gifts to the people in, in, in a messianic typology and, and Paul then takes that whole thing as it's summarized in, in Psalm sixty eight eighteen In reference to God's victory, his ascent on high, his ascent on Mount Zion And uh, leading forth a host of captives and there he received gifts to men, but Paul, under the Holy Spirit, changes it for application, and it's the distribution of gifts from his victory. So the ascension allows Jesus then to distribute the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And then in verses nine and ten, there is a, a explanation of what that meant. And then in Hebrews four, I mean Ephesians four eleven and twelve, the, the gifts he's emphasizing he gave some as apostles. And some as prophets And some as evangelists And some as pastors and teachers Now apostles and prophets were limited to the first century But the other two gifts Evangelists and pastors and teachers Are spiritual gifts given to the church For a purpose And that's described in verse 12 For the equipping of the saints For the work of service It's the the, the pastor, teacher and evangelists Are like Football coaches. They're to equip the team. They don't get out on the field and play per se. They equip the team. Notice, the evangelist equips the team. The focus here is not that the evangelist is the one who goes out and witnesses. And gets all these unbelievers saved See, that's the image that we have today We have the, uh, since, we, since the second great awakening and, and Charles Grandison Finney, who I always love to blame for every, everything uh, Ever since then, Americans been on this revivalistic mentality That what you do with an evangelist is you put him up in, in a stadium somewhere And he preaches sermons and people get saved coming forward Finney invented the whole methodology, but he was, he was probably not even saved himself and had a screwed up gospel and screwed up understanding of the kingdom and screwed up everything else. But everybody follows it all the way down to Billy Graham. But see, that's not what the Scripture is saying here. The Scripture isn't saying that, that um, you're given the gift of evangelism so that you can go out and witness to a lot of people. You will do that if you have the gift of evangelism. But it's that you're given the gift in order to equip the members of the body of Christ To be effective in witnessing That's why one of these uh, Saturday mornings coming up We're going to have Gene Brown come over And everybody who's interested in trying to figure out how to be a little more effective in witnessing Can come down and we'll have a little informal session In learning some things about presenting the gospel Because it's our job as as people who don't have the gift of evangelism, to learn how to do it effectively so that we can fulfill our responsibilities to witness. And then the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is given. pastor-teacher equips the saints. Now, an evangelist should always operate under the authority of a pastor-teacher because most evangelists uh, don't know enough about doctrine to stay out of trouble, and a lot of evangelists I've known have gotten into doctrinal trouble one place or another. The pastor teacher equips the saints for the work of service, that is, serving one another in the body of Christ toward the building up, that is, the edification of the body of Christ. So the whole body interacts. That's why you have all those passages that talk about one another, pray for one another, teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. That's all part of. It. It's not talking about the pastor is. That's not saying pastors pray for the church. Pastors encourage the church. Uh, pastors admonish the church. Pastors teach the church. You didn't say that. It says admonish one another, teach one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, love one another. It's that interactive ministry between the members of the body of Christ. We're one big happy family. Well, we ought to be, but we're not always happy. But it flows out of that training and equipping ministry of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher toward the ultimate goal given in Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of doctrine and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And that word fullness is that Greek word pleroma, which relates to being fully Christ-like. It's the fullness of Christ which is uh, reflected in the believer. Okay, and that brings us to the tenth point. Once the church is complete and has completed her mission, then the Messiah will return in victory and establish the Jewish Millennial Kingdom. So there's a training ground going on, and the pastor and the evangelist do the training to equip believers so that they can be prepared when the kingdom comes to rule as priests and kings. Well, that gives us the overview. Next time I want to come back and take us through two or three Old Testament passages to show how all of this relates because these all hang in the background to Hebrews chapter 1. The first place we'll go probably is Daniel 7 and then Psalm 2. And of course, Psalm 2 7 is where the writer of Hebrews begins in verse 5. And he connects it to Psalm 110 and to a number of other passages, Psalm 102, and introduces the word companions at the end of verse 9 the metakoi. See, the companions of Christ, the metakoi, that's another word. The companions of Christ are those who reflect the pleroma, the fullness of Christ. And we are the ones that are going to be the overcomers, the victorious believers that we're studying about in Revelation 2 and 3. Those terms are all connected. They're just different writers using different terminology to flesh out that significant role of the victorious, mature believer. And we'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to understand your plan, your purpose, where the church fits within the overall uh, structure of history and what Jesus Christ is doing with the church right now in this age and preparing us to rule and reign with him in the future. Pray that we would be responsive to this challenge as a church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.